Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Monster Kid Radio. I'm your host, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic cinema of yesteryear. And this week, I'm really excited. We've got Devin Devereaux on the show. Now, Devin Devereaux is a Portland-based illustrator who has a handful of work out there that you guys really need to be checking out right now. Start by going to his website. It's devindevereaux.com. His name is spelled D-E-V-O-N-D-E-V-E-R-E-A-U-X.com. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes to this episode and then episode six as well. Getting you to his website if you want to go check out his work. Now, he's the man behind two collections called Tales of Hot Rod Horror, Volume 1 and Volume 2. You can pick them up at your local comic book stores. You can pick them up on Amazon. I highly recommend you guys check these out. He was kind of the man behind putting the whole thing together. He's got a story in there. And there are a handful of stories from other writers and illustrators in these two collections. And there's a part three in the works right now. I highly recommend you guys go check that out. Something else you can go check out is Beyond the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. That's the band doing the music that's opening the show this week. This is the song Goatman's Bridge. You can find out more about what they do over at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash B-T-D-O-A-G-S. You'll hear this song in its entirety at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. Before we dive into part one of our chat with Devin, I want to go ahead and let you guys know about our contact information. You can find all this over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. You can find us on Facebook. Just look us up. We have both a page and a group. Now, you have to ask to join the group, and that's where a lot of the conversations are happening. When you find the page, if you can do me a favor, just like it. That would be awesome, because the more likes we have, the more attention we get, that sort of thing. And speaking of attention, if you do like the show, we're going to ask that you start reviewing it and talking about it in different places, the iTunes store, etc. As far as getting a hold of us directly, you can reach us by email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or by phone at 503-479-5MKR. So in part one of this discussion with Devin, we're going to talk a little bit about what he does, his background a little bit, and we're going to talk about The Fly, starring Vincent Price. This was a fun movie to go back to. I hadn't watched it in a long time leading up to this conversation, so it was really nice to kind of revisit this, kind of get my mad scientist groove on a little bit with an iconic movie when it comes to 50s sci-fi fare. Now, this recording was done earlier this year. I believe it was done back in March, which means that some of the things that Devin's talking about, things that are coming soon, like the upcoming release of Tales of Hot Rod Horror Volume 2, it's already come to pass. So you don't have to wait for it to come out. You can go pick it up right now. Something that is coming up soon for Devin, however, is a local show at a business here in Portland from June 10th to July 28th at a business called The Peculiarium. He's having an art show. The reception happens June 29th from 6 to 9 p.m. The Peculiarium is located at 2234 Northwest Thurman Street in Portland, Oregon. You can find out more about that by going to their website at peculiarium.com. Again, there will be a link in the show notes because I know it's kind of a hard thing to say, let alone spell, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. P-E-C-U-L-I-A-R-I-U-M.com. Devin's got a show happening And actually, since this show is going out on June 11th, the show's already kicked off. If you guys are in the area, do yourselves a favor. Go check out his artwork. Go check out his website if you're not in the area. And just see what Devin's all about. He loves his stuff as much as we do. We want to support our fellow monster kids. 
And speaking of which, I'm tired of talking. Let's let Devin chat for a little bit. All right, so I am joined right now by Devin Devereaux, an artist that I finally met in person, you know, face-to-face at Crypticon Seattle 2012, where I picked up a print of his that I can best describe as Cthulhu in a Cadillac. <laughs> it's at my desk right now at work. I've got it framed up. It's sitting there. It keeps me company during the, the day job. So thank you very much, Devin, and welcome to the show. Very cool. Thanks. It's, uh, I'm glad to, glad to be here. Now, before we get started, why do we have you on the show? Who are you? Well, I, I'm a local guy. So I'm Portland-based. I'm an illustrator and a publisher and sometimes a writer. I'm responsible for putting out the Tales of Hot Rod Horror comic books. And we are putting out our newest volume in March, Tales of Hot Rod Horror Volume 2. And we've got a lot of great comic artists and writers on there. We've got K.R.K. Ryden, who is an artist for Devo, did some of the Devo covers way back in the day. Uh, Rick Geary, who is... You know, well-known in a lot of comic book circles, worked for Mad Magazine, National Lampoon, all the DC big books of. Uh, we got David, uh, writer of Faust. He's my writing partner. So most of my published work has all been written by David. And he wrote for Doctor Strange, Ghost Rider, very well-known in the horror comics community. And uh, also wrote a book called The Littlest Bitch, which is a twisted children's book that him and I put out a couple of years ago, too, through uh, Sellers Books. And you can find all of David and I's stuff on Amazon.com. Um, or you can go to my website, which is DevonDevereaux.com, D-E-V-O-N-D-E-V-E-R-E-A-U-X.com. And we'll make sure there's links to that in the show notes and over at our website. And you also have CracklingImpPress.com as well, right? It's Yeah, cack, cackling it, as in laughing. So, ah, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 not a problem. So, See, yeah. that's, that's why I have you on the show, to keep me in check. <laughs> Cackling your press. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, guys, go check that out when you're done listening to this or while you're listening, whatever. Just make sure you go there at some point. Now, I put the call out on Facebook for people who might want to chat with us today about a, a classic sci-fi movie. And Devin came up with The Fly from 1958. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you pick this movie, man? So you were you said you were looking for something specifically from the 50s. So my my immediate thought was one of my all-time favorite movies was Plan 9 from Outer Space. But you're I know you're trying to get away from the zombie stuff, so I was kind of thinking about it and uh, and what else was you know sci-fi horror related from the 50s. And I said The Fly with Vincent Price, anything with Vincent Price would be would be great to talk about. You know, when I think Vincent Price, I don't really think the sci-fi horror. I immediately go to the Roger Corman, you know, the gothic stuff. Absolutely. You know, I don't go to the sci-fi kind of almost mad scientist type movie that this is. Not that Vincent Price is a mad scientist in this movie, but this has that kind of twisted science gone amok kind of vibe going for it. And I haven't seen this movie in years. I mean, it's been at least 10 years, if not longer for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just I just watched it again last night. Uh, and I saw the remake, uh, and ha- I watched it at Halloween last year with uh, Jeff Goldblum, and that one always holds up really, really well, stands the, the test of time. That one's aged really well. And and so is this one. I mean, this one is, uh, they do a really, really good job of building the story in this one and kind of making it into a, into a mystery. And uh, they do a really good job of pacing this all the way up until the end, the, uh, the Vincent Price one. Until you get to the final reveal. Right, yeah. I, I, When I think back on the fly, when I think about my memories of it, I remembered it being more like science run amok, but it, and that's how I described it a second ago, but that's really not accurate. This movie is a mystery. It's very dramatic. It's a little melodramatic in spots. Yeah. But it, it's not that kind of shock you 
you know, mad scientist trying to do something crazy and evil kind of thing. It's just a guy experimenting who gets caught up in his own experiments and trapped by his own ambition and, you know, the people around him kind of dealing with the fallout of that. It's, right. it's a fascinating film. It is. And, and it's, it's very, it's, it's much more like a Hitchcock movie where they just, they just let things build and build and build and build and build. And my buddy Sean and I kind of talk about what makes something a horror film or what makes something genuinely scary and, and it's building that contrast of making you like the characters, making you putting you in a, in a safe place, and then just turning everything upside down on its head. And, and uh, Fly is a perfect example of, of using that horror formula. Definitely. Now, when it kicks off, the movie starts pretty gruesome. I didn't remember the blood. And I was, I was a little taken aback when I saw it. I wasn't really expecting it to happen. I mean, we, we've got a body trapped in a press, and there's yeah. blood pouring or had poured down the side of it. Pretty gruesome for the time. Yeah, for 1958, mm-hmm. I was not – I didn't remember that. Maybe yeah. that's a testament of the film. I mean, you don't remember the gore. You remember everything else about it. But, I mean, that really – I can't imagine what audiences thought. Yeah, I'm sure that was pretty pretty jarring. It's, I mean, what other movies at the time would you go see that have somebody completely crushed and their body half coming out of a hydraulic press with blood always? And to make it worse, not only was it done once, but we learned pretty quickly that the press <laughs> was brought down on the body twice. Right. So that's not just an accident. That was an intentional. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that really took me aback. I was also a little surprised. My memories were more Vincent Price heavy and really he's yeah he's not that's the thing that I noticed about it too is is you always identify Vincent Price as carrying the film but no it's the uh, it's the actress Patricia Owens she has more screen time than anybody and uh and most of the film is done with flashback and I'd say there's a good 40 minute sequence where Vincent Price doesn't even show up at all yeah he's kind of like a framing device Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one telling us the story. It's a flashback kind of thing. It's him and uh, the inspector, Herbert Marshall, played him, just investigating what happened. And then Patricia Owens kind of explaining what had happened to her and her husband, Andre, played by David Hedison, uh, billed as Al Hedison in the movie. Uh, that's just a testament to Vincent Price, where when he just shows up, he just chops the scenes and just you can't you can't forget about him. It's I mean, even in Edward Scissorhands, when he shows up, he's only in it for a good five minutes at most. But when you think about that movie, I, I think of Johnny Depp and Vincent Price as the, as the main people. when I, when I think back on that, yeah, Vincent Price is like a walking mustachioed, uh, <laughs> you know, charisma. That's all he is. You know, <laughs> you can't help but watch him and just be enthralled by just his voice alone, mm-hmm. let alone his, his very subtle body <laughs> acting, you know, very subtle. Do you ever notice he's always either wearing a smoking jacket or a cardigan whenever he shows up in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> and when I was watching this, and once again, he get it starts out with he gets a phone call and it's it's late at night and he's in a smoking jacket just at his desk and it seems like any of the Roger Corman, Vincent Price movies, he's always showing up in some kind of a red smoking jacket. It's hilarious. You know, I don't know if I've ever seen him wearing anything but you know something somewhat formal like like, did the man ever own a pair of jeans you know (laughs) someone someone get this man an ascot and a smoking jacket (laughs) that was on his writer whenever he signed on for a film that was always included (laughs) in the wardrobe (laughs) so you said as you said the movie opens with him getting a phone call from you know helene his now the relationship is that helene is his sister-in-law andre's his brother did i get that right yeah absolutely and there was a romance that never blossomed with those two, and she ended up marrying his brother and had a had a child with right. the brother. 
and she's panicking. She needs to see Francois, played by Price, which, real quick, everybody's French in this movie, but I don't know if there's one real French accent <laughs> right. in any of this. And it, well, it's supposed to be in, Mo- in Montreal, right? It, was it Montreal? Okay, so yeah, French-Canadian. French-Canadian. Yeah, yeah, okay. Still, I don't know if I buy Vincent Price as French-Canadian, no. but no. No. <laughs> Just one of those voices. So, yeah, she, he gets a phone call, and this kicks off the story of The Fly. Nowadays, I think it's pretty straightforward. We kind of know what the story is, even though we're a little surprised that, wait a minute, Price isn't in it as much as we thought he was. I, I think we all kind of know the story now. And When I was watching it this morning myself to, to get ready for this recording, I kept waiting. Okay, where's the reveal? Where's the reveal? I know the pulling the hood off the face is coming. Where's that camp happening? They made us wait for that thing. Mm-hmm. They, they really milked that out. And I think back when the movie was first released, that had to have been a shock, right? I, I can't think of any movie that would have prepped audiences for something like that. But I don't know, though. I think in the older movies, there was there was a real confidence with you know being able to hold back and and hold back your the monster effects. And I don't know, maybe it was just budget, maybe. Uh, you know, maybe it was just cheaper to to do it that way. But I think a lot of current monster movies are really ruined by they do the reveal way too early on, and they don't they don't let things build. It's it's like uh, you know when you're when you're cooking something in the kitchen, you want to make sure that everything gets to a boil. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's like if you if you start out with with everything, you're, you're not uh, you're not invested. You you have no basis for reality. Right, and and I agree. I mean, I think it was effective. I just found myself getting a little more impatient because I knew it was coming, mm. you know, and I had seen it before, so sure. you know, I, I had that memory of it. Plus, you know, the the scene's been lampooned or spoofed or homaged, so I, I knew it was coming. I was prepped for it. But back then, you're absolutely right. I think the uh, the monster movie, especially a monster movie from a, a, a main studio like this, so what was it, Fox that put this out? Mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox, you know, like you said, there's a confidence to the reveal and the build. And well, the whole movie feels more like a drama to me than a flat out scary sci-fi yeah. movie. You know what movie I, I would compare it to is the original Child's Play. Um, because if, you, if you're if you watching Child's Play for the very, very first time, it's not till about the end of the second act into the movie that you are thinking, hey, maybe that this uh, this doll is actually the uh, the antagonist. Because the whole time you're kind of thinking that it's, this uh, this child that that is the real killer of the movie. So I think with the fly, if you're watching it for the very first time, you're you're kind of wondering maybe it's Helene is actually killed this guy and and uh, you know what actually happened because she has a motive. There's a love interest with Francois. Maybe there's something else going on here. And then uh, you know it's kind of hinted at that it could be this other sci-fi element, but. Up until that point, it, you, the movie could just play out as a regular murder mystery. You, know, you bring up the, the potential romance, and you know I don't know if that was something that I'd really considered until you actually mentioned it. I, I, you're absolutely right. This could have been a, a just a crazed plot by two lovers trying to get back together, and there's this brother or husband that's in the way. And he's a scientist guy who does all this crazy stuff we don't understand. So you know, there's this whole story that she could have been building up, and it's, that's an interesting approach. I like that. Cool. So the the woman, uh, the the wife, uh, we mentioned her name earlier, uh, Helene, played by Patricia Owens. Her portrayal is pretty typical of a lot of 50s sci-fi monster movies. You know, the woman who screams every time something scary happens. You know, that's um, so I did find myself rolling my eyes a little bit with the. Mm-hmm. But with that portrayal, but you know that's also a sign of the times. I mean, we can't really damn them for that. That's just kind of how it was, unfortunately, right or wrong. 
Beyond that, though, she's still able to push through some of these stereotypes and these tropes, I suppose you can say, of these films. Yeah, it really is her. It really is her movie. Exactly. I mean, you still yeah. find yourself being empathetic toward her and kind of rooting for her. Mm-hmm. And towards the end, when Francois and the inspector start playing along with maybe understanding and accepting what she's doing and don't really let on that she's about to get taken away to the to the asylum or the hospital. I really kind of felt for her and was kind of glad, you know, she's going to be okay. You know, right. she she did what she had to do and she convinced everybody that that was what would happen. I, yeah, I was they, pretty impressed. They did a really good job of uh, building tension in the last five minutes in the movie with everything kind of came to a head with the police inspector coming to the hospital and, you know, the reveal of the fly in the in the spider trap and then Vincent Price running to the to the bench where the the, the cobweb is. So they, they did a really good job of just ramping up the volume in the last five minutes of the movie, I thought. Sure. Well, I mean, part of this for acting and, you know, a big part of it, I would have to credit to the director, Kurt Newman. I'm not overly familiar with his work. I, I did stumble across something online that says he might have been considered for The Bride of Frankenstein, which would have been very interesting. Yeah, the the only other thing that looked notable to me was he directed a handful of the Tarzan movies from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And I think besides The Fly, I think this was his most well-known film. And it looks like he died before The Fly ever came out in the theaters. He went to an, an original screening at the studio, so he never got to see the uh, the success that The Fly had in the theater. That was the biggest uh, hit in it, of his career. Was the movie a success at, it, at its uh, release? I believe it was, yeah. It sounded like it was very, very well-reviewed and one of the highest-grossing uh, horror films of the 50s. Mm-hmm. He directed a couple other things that I hope to cover at some point here on Monster Kid Radio, things like Rocket Shit XM from 1950 and Kronos from 1957. But certainly okay. The Fly is his most well-known production and his final. So, you know, we've been kind of skipping around. You know, this is what happened in the beginning. This is what happened in the end. There's a lot of good stuff that happens throughout the entire film. I think the chemistry and the relationship between Helene and Andre is very interesting and fascinating to me as Andre is is exploring science and trying to come up with this transportation device. I I believed him as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it gets a little difficult to portray the scientist type characters in these movies when they just start having them start throwing, well, they call it techno babble in Star Trek, you know, that, that techno babble kind of stuff. They kind of avoided that with this. No, they made him very human. Yeah, exactly. They humanized the character. So when, but when what happens to him happens to him, I did feel, you know, pathos and, and sympathy for his situation. And I thought that was again, a good choice on, on behalf of the director and then the actor, you know, Hedison, I think did a wonderful job doing that. I felt like he and Owens had a real relationship and they really had a connection through the entire movie. I felt Price, I mean, I, I hate to say it because it's been some Price, but it felt a little like stunt casted to me <laughs> with Price. Because I, I don't know if I bought that he was really related to everybody, but he's still great right. to watch. It's, it seems like they kind of just brought him in for maybe one or two days of shooting. And, uh, just, yeah. They were like, we need a big name for this movie. Uh, let's let's bring this guy in. Exactly, right? <laughs> but I mean, but in retrospect, uh, I mean, the best scene of uh, of the film, I mean, is, you know, he totally owns it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to talk a little bit about the plot. I think most people know what the story is, but bottom line, it's about uh, Andre. He's trying to transport matter from one location to another. Starts with a plate, and as fans of any fly movie really kind of can guess, it doesn't go right. 
Uh, right off the bat, the plate is reversed, and you can tell that by the printing on the back of the plate being reversed when it goes over, which immediately reminded me of what happens in the Fly remake when they try to transport a dog. Or no, it was a monkey, right, that got turned inside out? Oh, yeah, yes. So, yeah, it immediately made me think of that. And you know, as the experiment continues and progresses, Andre's doing his best to play both roles, you know, dutiful husband, dedicated scientist, takes his wife out to the ballet, but still can't turn off the scientist part of his brain because while they're at the ballet, he's coming up with formulas and writing it down on the program and his wife is rolling her eyes, you know, oh, that's just my husband, but she's not upset about it. She's a very supportive wife, understands that she married a scientist. As the movie continues, he escalates his experiments and there's a very unfortunate accident with the family cat. Which, because I knew what happened to the monkey in the remake, and because we saw the blood at the very beginning of the movie, I was bracing myself for something that would have passed for gruesome in 1958 regarding that cat. I'm glad it didn't happen, because I'm a cat person. (laughs) I think I had a cat on my lap when I was watching that scene. (laughs) Uh, But instead of anything happening visually to the cat it just kind of disappears we start to hear the meows in the in the ether somewhere so somewhere out there the cat's still there but it just disappears now he doesn't tell anybody about the cat until later when he's showing his wife the fruits of his continued labor eventually we learn that he tried to transport himself and there's a fly in the box and i think we kind of know what happened from there yeah But again, all this is happening while Helene is telling her story and she's the one selling everything and is really told from her point of view. Right. And that's that's the one thing I really loved about the storytelling in the movie is that you don't see him go into the chamber and then come out as the fly like they did in the Jeff Goldblum movie. Uh, It's it's just she's going on with her life and then it's just it's it's happening as she's doing other things. And you don't realize that something has gone wrong until she starts uh, picking up the notes that he's sliding under the door. Asking for milk laced with rum? <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't do that? Well, though? yeah. Well, I, I, next time I'm looking to catch some flies, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. Set some milk out with some rum, right? They all, they all, they all love that. We all know that. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, when we finally do see some of the fly-man hybrid, it's when the hand flops out when he's trying to when he's being emphatic and he's trying to gesture and this fly hand comes out and it's, it's a wonderful reveal. I mean, the body language that Hedison was able, I'm assuming it was Hedison in the fly mask, the body language that he had with the fly hand and the, the towel over his head, uh, mm-hmm. hiding his head in his fly head. I thought it was very well done. And, you know, he's trying to control the fly hand and it seems to have a mind of its own every once in a while. What did you think of, of the creature design, the monster effect here? You know, I, th- I thought it was great. And uh, for the time, it works perfectly. And there's there's things about the old movies that just worked really, really well, where uh, I don't know if you'd be able to get away with that today if you were to do a fly another fly movie and you did it exactly, you know, with the makeup. But I mean, just something about the tone of the movie and uh, everything. It's some of those old effects just work, work perfectly than, you know, if you stack them up against uh, anything that we're doing today. How about, I don't know. How about you? You know, I think it's part of the fifties aesthetic to have that kind of monster suit style monster effect. And I think today you'd see it all CG'd up, you know, it'd be a guy in a, a green screen suit with ping pong balls glued over it and they'd fix it in post and put something horrific on there. 
But I like that 50s aesthetic. I like that kind of retro pop feel to that, Mm -hmm. you know? I I don't know if it would fly today with modern audiences. It would work for an audience made up of people like you and me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, there aren't enough people like that out there. Yeah, well, it's also people are people are trained for for the aesthetic of the of the day too, and uh, it's I mean even if you try to go back and do a movie like it was done in the '80s, people are just trained visually to see things. They're they're just programmed to see things differently, and anytime you you break the mold of uh, of what the current aesthetic is, you're you're taking a big risk. True, that's true. I mean, it's it's one of those things maybe modern audiences would need to be prepped for. I know that every once in a while there will be a retro film kind of put out there. Alien Trespass comes to mind, which was come uh, which was put out a few years ago. It was done as like a throwback 50s sci-fi, it conquered the world style kind of movie. Well, you you had mentioned uh, Matinee earlier. Yeah, and Matinee and- is fantastic. And I think uh, Matinee, did you, all, did you also see, see the movie Popcorn that came out in 1990? Yeah, that's kind of like a throwback to the 80s style, isn't it? Well, well, it was, well, it was made, it was made in uh, 1990. That's when it came out, but it was a love letter to William Castle. So, oh right, with the theater set and everything. Yeah, they had the stench where they in the it was there was a serial killer in the movie theater, and they were pouring this the stench in while they're watching it. And then there was one called Mosquito. And right. the mosquito was a lot like the fly or the 1950s movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you got a chance, but uh, Dee Wallace, who was a Crypticon last year, I had her sign my, my popcorn laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you had a chance to talk to her, but she was in it. Nice. And there's a, an independent filmmaker named Christopher R. Mim who puts out what he calls good, bad movies. And they're, they're basically love letters, throwbacks to the 50s style you know, monster movies. Uh, he's been doing those one a year since 2004. 2005 he's up to like movie number seven or eight now so you know i mean there there are some niche audiences for this kind of thing sure as far as like a wide release i don't know if something like this would fly but that's okay we have it on dvd we can enjoy it that's true and it is easily available on dvd it's something you can get your hands on pretty quickly uh you know i found it through a couple of different online retailers as well uh so it's real easy to find if people haven't seen it they need to i think it's one of the classics and I mean, and that that being said, uh, I really love the '86 Fly movie with the Cronenberg one. I thought that was a brilliant remake. And uh, it's, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe somebody will do it again, and it'll be it'll be cool for whatever the 2000 teens are going to look like. <laughs> True. Uh, it's it's a definitely uh, a different vibe. It's a totally different aesthetic. You've got Cronenberg kind of working through his body horror problems, <laughs> obsessions uh, in the Fly remake. It really doesn't have a lot to do with this original film. Now, I've not read the short story that this film was based on. It's based on a short story called The Fly by George Langelan. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that Cronenberg's is a little bit more true to the short story, but I don't know for sure. Like I said, I haven't read the short story. Uh, my experience with remakes of movies like this is that one, if I can approach it as not a remake but just another adaptation, it's a little bit of an easier sell for me. But when you've got the literature background or the literature base, it seems like movies when you revisit – or stories like this, you revisit them. They, they are successful like Howard Hawks' is, uh, The Thing from Another World and Carpenter's The Thing. You know, It's another example of a movie made in the 50s and then redone in the 80s, all stemming from a short story but still having some of the similar elements. And, and again, it's, it's a successful you know, reworking of that story for that audience. So you're right. Maybe, you know, as we get further along, you know, if there's somebody else who wants to take another crack at this story, I'd give it a shot. I mean, I think the the bare bones are there for something that can be really interesting. Yeah, definitely. 
And who doesn't like science run-amuck movies anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a question for you. Is this the first – I can't think of a movie earlier than this that dealt with teleportation. I can't think of a movie either that does it this way, at least in terms of us as human beings trying to do it. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if there was a science fiction movie out there where there's some alien race that teleport things back and forth. You know, there's some superior intelligence out there that does it. But in terms of us trying to figure it out, I can't think of anything that had done it before this. Yeah, well, I was I was reading a little bit about teleportation last night, and I guess it was uh, – do you know who Charles Ford is from 40 and Times? Oh, yeah, yeah. But in well, case I, anybody out there who doesn't, who is Charles Ford? Uh, well, Charles Ford uh, wrote a series of books, uh, 1930s. He was kind of like a Robert Ripley type, mm-hmm. and just he was really, uh, I mean, open-minded to a fault, where he would investigate <laughs> the paranormal, the supernatural, and didn't really care about science, where, where science played into any of this stuff. He said that let's just view this from open eyes without any kind of dogmas, whether it be religion or science or what have you. And let's just see things for they, how they actually are, and let's not use science and uh, and religion or any other philosophies to explain things away, which was the opposite of actually explaining something. And I, I always I always liked that. I always thought that was a really cool um, way to look at life, and a fun a fun way to look at it. But he did he did a book called Low, just L O exclamation point, and that was the first mention of uh, of teleportation. And he kind of talked about how things in uh, and nature could disappear and reappear in another place. And uh, in science fiction, after that, it, it started to become more popular. But from the little research I've done on Wikipedia and how stuff works, it sounds like Charles Fort was the, the, the person that coined that, that phrase. Okay. Yeah, uh, Charles Fort, uh, you mentioned 40 in Times. I mean, that's a magazine that's on the, rack, in the news rack today. You can still pick that up now. That's It's always an interesting read whenever i head down to like the pals city of bookstore here in portland if i see it on the shelf i'll pick it up and flip through it i don't necessarily buy it unless it's like about zombies or something but you know it's it's an interesting magazine at least <laughs> uh, i love it I, I had a subscription for a while but it gets so expensive because it's one of the uk books so it's like ten dollars an issue yeah yeah well that's interesting yeah i can't think of anything else that had really tapped into teleportation now granted when star trek came along you had the transporters and things like that and even in uh, star trek the motion picture you had the transporter accident where yeah. you know somebody being transferred transported had the the body yeah problem <laughs> such a creepy that was such a creepy scene it really was it made me think a little bit i mean i know it came out before but it does make me think of cronenberg's the fly mm-hmm. definitely know, that, that. As far as the transportation or the teleportation effects in 58's The Fly, you know, I, I liked it. I It wasn't overly flashy. Mm-hmm. I think it worked for what it, what it needed to do. Yeah, it's it was just a different type of storytelling. It's I mean, if you're invested in a story, you kind of have a suspension of disbelief, and you don't necessarily have to make things look realistic. It's just a way of telling a story. It's like when you watch a cartoon – you don't need things to look realistic. You just need things to fit the the mood of the film. Right. It just it needs to be consistent, not necessarily realistic. Right. And there is a consistency to all the science happening here. It's not you know bubbling beakers and Jacob's ladders and all this flashy electricity or whatever. You have some bright lights that come up and go down. A lot of neon signs. <laughs> there really were, right? <laughs> like Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> but the transportation itself just. They would go in in post, I guess, and, and hand draw or I don't know how they would have done it, but they, they took the transportation box and 
made it so bright you couldn't see anything in it and then dimmed it back down and the thing was gone and that was it. We never really yeah. saw it appear in the other box and I thought that was a, a, a wise choice mm-hmm. in working within your limitations when it comes to budgets and special effects. You know, the teleportation, the, the receiving end was always in another room on the other side of the wall. Yeah. So I thought that was you know, an interesting choice and, and probably pretty smart and a result of budget. But I think it works because it adds just a touch of suspense that's already there, you know, it just kind of adds to it. Definitely. And and I think, once again, it's if you invest in the characters in a movie like that and you make the characters charming and likable, uh, you can get away with a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of the Star Wars prequels where they did a lot of things right visually, but you were never invested in any of the characters. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I could. We, we could do a whole podcast about that. <laughs> we, we probably shouldn't, but we probably could. <laughs> Big thanks to Devin for joining us here at Monster Kid Radio. Again, check out his website at devindeverone.com. And check out The Tales of Hot Rod Horror, Volume 1 and Volume 2. I've got them both here. They're great. I love them. I've read them more than once. It's a lot of fun. It's that retro pop 50s kitsch. I love it. Just fun stuff. We're going to have Devin back in a couple of days for Part 2 of our chat. We're going to talk a little bit more about The Fly, talk about some potentially Lovecraftian themes that might turn up in the movie, as well as continue to talk about the remake and things like that. It's going to be a lot of fun to get Devin back on the show. And then we're going to schedule him for future episodes down the line as well. Maybe talk about some William Castle films. If you want to hear more Devin between now and then, I highly recommend you go check out his podcast, The Cackling Imp Podcast. You can find it on iTunes or just do a search for it in Google or your preferred search engine of choice. And specifically, if you're looking to just kind of taste it, test it out a little bit, check out episode 22. He interviews Bryn Barron, who played one of the Vampire Brides in the Monster Squad. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that does not extend to the song that we're going to play here. It is called Goatman's Bridge from Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion, which appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission. Ha, 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 ha.